Today's episode brought to you by BossPods.com. Want a podcast like a boss? We've got the inside word on how to set up a podcast that's actually worth something. We've got the industry's best to show you how. BossPods.com. Podcast like a boss. I normally, uh, I normally like to start by, um, by welcoming my guest and, um, and thanking them for coming. Uh, but it would be weird to welcome you into your own home. <laughs> um, but I can say thank you for having me in your home. Oh, of course. And, uh, and thank you so much for, for doing this podcast. I mean, I'm a relative stranger and you said sure. You're not a no. You play fantasy football with my husband. I do play fantasy <laughs> football with your husband. Yes, <laughs> you're not a stranger. <laughs> <laughs> I have been in your home for two years now. Yes. It's good to be back home, friends, in sunny Melbourne. Which, if you're in Melbourne, you know, it is not sunny. But it is good to be home. Thank you for tuning in. My guest this week on Coming Up Next is a pretty extraordinary woman. I was lucky enough to sit down with her while I was in Los Angeles recently. And what a career she has had. You may recognize her from shows such as Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Dexter, Defiance, and Hawaii Five-O. How lucky am I that I got to sit down and chew the fat with Julie Benz. But before we get into this week's interview, I wanted to ask you something. Have you got an awesome idea for a podcast, but you don't really know how to put it into action? Podcasting is the fastest growing form of new media out there. And in 2014, it surpassed 1 billion subscriptions. It's a fantastic way to engage an audience, generate new leads for your business, and of course, become an authority figure in your area of expertise. Why am I telling you about this? Because I've been speaking with some of the Australian entertainment industry's longer serving practitioners and we have come together to create an online course for people who want to learn how to podcast like a boss. Head on over to bosspods.com and learn how to make a podcast that's actually worth something. Now, while you're surfing the World Wide Web, jump on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash cunpodcast. You'll find me on Twitter, at cunpodcast, Instagram, at cunpodcast. And you know what? You should probably subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher, depending on if you're an iTunes or a Stitcher user. Hit the subscribe button and give us a five-star review. Like a boss. And now let's pick it up. My interview with... Buffy, Dexter, Hawaii Five O, and Defiance actor extraordinaire Julie Benz. And you're someone who's had an incredibly sustained career for what twenty, twenty-five years. Yeah, a long time. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I started when I was thirteen, so it's been about thirty years. Yeah, wow. Yeah, I mean, I had struggled in like the first five years. <laughs> I struggled a bit, but um, <laughs> I've been with my manager. My manager discovered me when I was thirteen. Wow! And he's still my manager today. So wow, we're going on to thirty-one years together. That's quite a relationship you've got there. It is. It's like a marriage. Mm. You know, sometimes, sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't work. But we don't give up on it. So 
And you started out uh, as a as a figure skater. I did. I did. At the age of three, I was dragged to an ice rink. There was an ice rink in the local mall. And my mom took us there to do like a family activity every weekend. And uh, you, my parents are suckers for the your kids are so talented line. Right. <laughs> <laughs> because at the age of three, I was not talented on the ice. <laughs> mm. I could barely stand up. But um, my parents really believed that we were talented, and so we started taking lessons. We went from group lessons to private lessons, and then, and then, really started training. I mean, I, I, I had a. Uh, it was like having a career at a very young age. It's like having a job. Wow, and how did you kind of balance that with, like, school life and maintaining kind of a social life and. Well, the social life suffered, obviously, a bit. I mean, I, I trained eight hours a day, seven days a week, two weeks off a year from the age of three until um, well, I re- officially retired at 16, but I had a bad injury when I was 13. So, mm. um, But, you know, I was fortunate. My brother and sister also ice skated. So in many ways, our social life was with, with my siblings. Um, and then we also had a social life with other ice skaters who were also you know, on the same journey, on the same path, mm. putting in the long hours and stuff. So, um, but my parents, they did their best to try to keep a semblance of a normal childhood as much as possible, as much as they possibly could. Um, you know, we were always, we were always home if there was a school dance, like an important school dance we mm. were allowed to go to. Um, and they, I mean, they they did their best. I don't I I don't feel like I I missed out on too much because I got to experience a lot. You know, we traveled the world as kids and got to meet some amazing people and have some amazing experiences. Um, I had friends from all over the world, uh, not just in our hometown. Uh, you know, I do remember being able to go to sleepover parties and stuff. It just had to fall at the right time. You know, mm. uh, during competition season was pretty tough. So I would say about during six months of the year, it was uh, pretty intense. And then the other six months, there was some flexibility within it. Uh, we lived in Pittsburgh, and we would drive to Michigan to skate. So that's a six hour, six hours away. So we would train during the week in Pittsburgh, but then on Fridays we'd drive to Detroit skate all night Friday night all day Saturday Sunday morning and then drive back to Pittsburgh so you know it was definitely and in the summers it was reversed well that's quite an intense uh, childhood it was (laughs) (laughs) it was but I I didn't know anything else yeah of course if you don't know any different then it it just becomes the norm um Mm. I was fortunate that I was I was good at school so um I didn't have to study much to to pass tests, um, <laughs> so I was fortunate in that in that department, mm. um, you know. But it was a it was definitely a different type of childhood. It wasn't a normal one. Yeah, middle child, youngest, youngest. Mm-hmm. Ah, I see. <laughs> I'm a middle child. That's why I guess middle, because I wanted you to be the same. Because that's yeah, what a yeah. middle child wants. <laughs> uh, it's funny, like just listening to you talking about that as I'm as you're speaking about the kind of structure of your days and things that you have to do you could be talking about acting as well 
Yeah, very much. And it's funny to consider that, you know, how much of what we do in our childhood kind of shapes and nurtures uh, our habits and what we may or may not end up doing as grown-up people. Definitely. I mean, I, I think one of my biggest flaws is that I'm extremely disciplined. Mm. I have a really hard time letting go of, of schedule and structure and um, routine. Like it's, it, it gets in my way of sometimes having fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, uh, some people would say, well, that's not necessarily a flaw, but it can be. It, mm. it can be. Um, you kind of need to control everything in that yeah, way. Yeah, and, and then if, if rhythm and routine and structure gets thrown off, it really throws me for a loop. I get like, whoa, what's going on here? <laughs> <laughs> I can't function. Um, so I, mean, I, I have extreme discipline, uh, which I know was, you know, was something that ice skating taught me, mm. you know, that you have to work hard. I mean, the lessons that I took away from my youth was that there is no such thing as an overnight success, Mm. that you have to work hard and you have to fail sometimes, you Mm. know. Fail forward. Exactly. And it's not in the failing, it's in the getting up and and what you do next Mm. where, um, where the lesson is learned and... For me, you know, that, that's always been, I think that's why I, I have had a lot of work for a long period of time, <laughs> knock on wood, because uh, I, I don't, A, I don't take it for granted, and B, I, um, every time there is there is a, a failure, I get up and I get back out on the ice and I try again. Yeah, yeah. I like how you brought that full circle there. Mm. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> I try. <laughs> and so it was uh, it was what when you were around 13 or 14 that you started looking into acting. Yes, I had I had suffered a bad injury. Um I had a stress fracture in my tibia bone and I'd skated on it for too long. Um because it was competition season, I didn't want to miss out. Mm. And I was in a lot of pain by the time we finally Finally went to the doctor. My, I had a hairline fracture up the whole bone, and oh, wow. um, I had to be off the ice for a while. I basically missed that year of competing, um, and so my mother, who didn't want to have a lazy kid sitting around the house, mm-hmm. <laughs> she's a bit of a bulldozer, especially not <laughs> one who was as talented as you. Were. Yeah, exactly. Um, she dragged me kicking and screaming to audition for a play. Because I didn't want to do it. I was like, no. And uh, I got the the role. Mm. And I loved it. And then she dragged me down to this modeling seminar where I met my manager, who's my manager to this day, Vincent Srincion. And Shout uh, out to Vince. Yeah, big shout out to Vince, to Vinny. Um, and, you know, he's like, you got a great look, kid. Um, come did to he New York. Say kid? He did, yeah. That's cool. Yeah, he, he, he talks. He sounds like he sounds like Joe Pesci. So he's like, <laughs> yeah, you got a good look, kid. You should come to New York. <laughs> and uh, and so my mother um, took me to New York that week, and uh, I started auditioning like here and there. Um, I would I started auditioning for a lot of stuff in Pittsburgh. They were mm. f- doing a lot of filming there at the time, and got cast in a couple little movies and did some commercials and some radio and a lot of plays and 
it just seemed to be a natural progression. I did go back to skate um, the following year. I switched from singles to ice dancing because I couldn't really jump anymore. Mm. And my partner and I, we competed. We went to nationals. And then that summer, he decided not to continue. He he was older and he wanted to go to college and he didn't want to continue skating. And so I was off for another six months at a competition season. It was too late to get a new partner. And, uh, and then the following year... Uh, I tried. I tried three different partners out, and they all were really good. And you know, I could have followed in my brother and sister's footsteps, but my heart wasn't in it. And for me, it mm. was like I just I discovered something else that I loved more, which was acting, and I wasn't ready to walk away from it. And so, because I wouldn't be able to do both, mm. so I made the decision to pursue acting. I mean, honestly, as a figure skater, your shelf life is is very short. <laughs> as Blades of Glory taught us. Yes. All. <laughs> um, and especially back then, I mean, your your shelf life is, you know, pretty much ends in your 20s. And mm. then, you know, if you're fortunate to go to the Olympics, you know, you get your face on a Wheaties box possibly. but um, <laughs> And that's about it. And maybe join an ice show and tour and... And, you know, now there's more opportunity. But back then when I was doing it, there wasn't that much more. And then, you know, most of the skaters back then would become coaches. And mm. I just I just saw a different future for myself. Mm. Just to, to backtrack a little bit, one of the mm. first films that you did was a Dario Argento, <laughs> George Romero film. Yes. Which I like that you refer to it as a little film. It was a little film. <laughs> It was little back then. Just working with some, just working with some of the masters of uh, modern cinema. I know, <laughs> and Harvey Keitel was in it. Yeah, yeah. He was the star of it. I had no idea who I had. Uh, to be honest with you, I had no idea who any of these people were. I knew who George Romero was because mm. growing up in Pittsburgh, everyone knows George Romero. Um, had no idea who Dario Argento was. Uh, no idea who Harvey Keitel was. Mm. Uh, I went in to be an extra, actually. Right. And uh, Dario saw me sitting there and he, he, I was with my mom and he asked us to, um, we were summoned to go into his, into an office and, you know, he didn't speak, he, he spoke very broken English and he looked at me and he goes, do you want to be in my movie? I'm terrible at accents. <laughs> and he goes, do you that, want to be in my movie? That's an excellent Russian and, <laughs> Russia, I know, he's Italian. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to be in my movie? And I looked at it, I said, yeah. And I was you know, a little 16-year-old. I was like, yes, of course. And he's like, no, 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 no. Do you want to be in my movie? That's better. Yeah. <laughs> that was better. You've got to put more R's at the end of the word. <laughs> do you, do you want to be in my movie? But uh, no, it's no. still terrible. I, yeah. I, I don't, but and um, we'll work on it. so I I started jumping up and down. I'm like, yes, I want to be in your movie. And he goes, all right, you play Betty. <laughs> and I was like, and I we actually thought Betty was just an extra. I didn't realize I actually had five lines. Oh wow! And my mom negotiated my deal. It was not very good. <laughs> um, but at the time, we thought it was amazing. Mm. Um, and. Uh, um, and it was fun. It was great. Um, I had to, uh, uh, I was a violin student mm -hmm. and I had played the violin as a kid. I knew one song, Hot Cross Buns. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. 
and my which is also three blind mice is that, is that what it is okay <laughs> and uh my great grandmother had been a violinist and so we actually had this amazing old violin that was hers mm. and so when i showed up to my lesson for the movie they were just blown away by this violin that we owned that was a family heirloom and so um they used we used it in the movie except i didn't use it the uh madeline potter i think it's madeline potter madeline oh god it was so long ago the actress in the movie who played the teacher she used the the family heirloom and then they gave me a little rental violin Mm. um that we played a couple little, little snippets of songs. I was actually pretty good since I had played since I was when I was really little. Mm. Um, you still play? No, no. Gave it in with the ice skates. Yeah, I, you know what? I never, like I said, I only knew one song really, maybe two, but it wasn't like <laughs> I'm not musically inclined. Mm-hmm. It's not where my talent lies. Right, <laughs> and. Um, and then I got to work with Harvey, and he was lovely. And, you know, I I mean, Daria was just like this ball of Italian energy that just mm. would shout in a different language, and somebody would translate what, he, what it was he was saying. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was just in awe of the whole thing. Like, yeah. You know, I was embarrassed that my mother had to be there because I was underage. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to be treated like an adult, but of course my mom had to be there. Mm. But um, My mom still has to come on set with me. She does? Yeah. I understand why. Yeah. Meeting you, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> She's actually here right now. Oh, she is? Yeah. <laughs> is she in the car? <laughs> yep. She's waiting in the car. She's waiting in the car. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, but it was fun. It was exciting. And, um, and it's had a bit of a resurgence. I mean, at least some of my fans on Twitter have found it and have mm. been sending me pictures from it. And it's so embarrassing. I'm like, oh my God, I was such a baby. <laughs> <laughs> it was the 80s. I had like the worst hair. Yeah. <laughs> well, it'll be fashionable again in about eight years, I think. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> eight more years and then everybody will think I look cool. Yeah. <laughs> be so retro. <laughs> now true. Cool. Uh, I remember too, I was a panther. I was, a, I was the school mascot for my high school at the time. And I had to miss... I had to miss a bunch of, um, I had to miss like two basketball games or two football games or something like that. And I remember that they were going to um, kick me off the the, the, ma- the team mascot squad. There was three of us and I was going to get kicked off because I was missing to shoot this movie. And, and I remember going to the teacher and just being like, you can't do this. You can't kick me off the squad because I am living my dream. And they kept me on. <laughs> and it was your but, finest performance. Yeah, but I thought, you know, I thought being the team mascot was such a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> well, I used to think being a cinema rusher was a big deal as well. Yeah. <laughs> I was reading somewhere that you had a, a teacher in high school speaking of yeah that was in college no well it was a pre-college summer program at carnegie mellon university right so i was in high school but it was not my any of my high school teachers it was uh, i spent a summer the summer between my junior and senior year um it was like an eight-week camp where you go and you stay in the Mm. dorms and you immerse yourself in the theater program and carnegie mellon university is an extremely prestigious acting university here and 
in the States and it happens to be in the city of Pittsburgh. Mm. And um, I got accepted into the pre-college program and they would, what it was was, you know, they'd accept all these kids and then they would maybe pick three or four for early admissions. Right. Right. And uh, so I had a teacher there that thought I basically on my um, my final report, she said that I would never make it as an actress because I had a terrible speaking voice and that I should just give up. <laughs> <laughs> I still have it. It's in my garage and a bin and I, you know, I, it's traveled with me everywhere. When you say bin, you mean like a container? Like a container yeah. of, of like bin, memorabilia. Bin means like trash in oh. Australia. Oh, no, 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 no. In, a, in like a plastic container mm. of, you know, memorabilia. And, and it, it's funny that I kept it because I remember at the time I was really, I honestly was like, what? You know, like, well, like no way. Like, mm. I can't believe this person said this about me. And, and it was really hurtful and it made me doubt myself. But mm. then... um. But then you know, my man, Vince, my manager, who was my manager at the time, and we were just, you know, it's only three years into our relationship, but he said to me, he's like, listen, kid, sometimes <laughs> the thing that makes you different and unique, so, you know, it, it's, it's the thing that also makes you a success. And people, they either love it or they hate it. And he's like, and you got an interesting voice. Mm. So people are either going to love it or they're going to hate it. But that's the, what makes you unique, kid. And, um, and so that's kind of... I didn't let it, instead of letting it defeat me, I used it to fuel me. Mm, to persevere. Yes. I also think she's a terrible teacher. I mean, teachers <laughs> should not be telling kids at that age that they shouldn't pursue their dreams. No. They should be trying to help them as much as possible. And um, I think it's, it's, a, it's a great example of a bad, ins- of a bad teacher. Mm. Well, who knows why she said what she said. Perhaps she was... Um you know, uh, in her mind, she was trying to be protective because she herself had had failure or something to that effect. But, you know, you sh- uh, I, I agree with you. I people shouldn't be putting that kind of predisposition onto, especially kids in formative yeah. years. And, I mean, I think you have a great voice. And Thank you. And obviously it's proven that you've had a very sustained <laughs> career. So that sliding doors moment was uh, you chose the right way. Thank you. Um, and it's, to me, it just kind of serves to reinforce this idea of really being who you are and being unapologetic for that and really stepping into that, even in the face of this authoritative figure saying to you, no, you're not good enough or you, you're never going to make it. A person who at the time you probably viewed as being someone who knew what they were talking about. Yes. Um, to actually stand there and go, well, no, this is who I am and this is part of what makes me unique and makes me the artist that I want to be. Yes. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, um, I... I did have a moment, though, where I thought, you know, this is also a bitter woman. (laughs) 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 Um, I did have that moment at that age. Uh, And this is, you know, this is not appropriate teaching. Like, this isn't helpful. Yeah. I was disappointed because, you know, we paid a lot of money to go to this pre-college program, and it was a very intense... It was as if you were in their acting school so you it was very rigorous and very intense and Mm. um and you're with 
you know, people who've come from all over the country and you don't know anybody. And so you're making friends. And it was really to give you kind of a taste of what college life would be like. Yeah. And, and I don't know. I, I just, I just felt that, um, that it was shit by her. Yeah, it was really shit. <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't helpful. There was nothing mm. helpful about it. And I didn't even go I didn't even I didn't even work on my voice or try to change it or you know, I, I didn't I I just I bit pretty much just ignored it. Mm. You know, and, and I think it's because I I had my manager and I had, you know, teachers in high school and, and I had other acting teachers that had that said you know it's that's what makes you unique like don't don't let this one person take that away from you mm. and I think that's amazing advice especially for someone of that age to receive and I'm sure there are plenty of people out there particularly in the entertainment industry people who are going to be on camera who are told don't bother you're too short or you're too tall or your voice mm -hmm. is weird or you're too fat or you're too skinny or, you know, whatever, any number of physical kind of things. And ultimately, those are the things that actually, in theory, could make them because right. it's what is truly unique to them. Right. Mm. And, you know, love or hate the important thing is that you're getting a response. A response, yeah. Yeah. I uh, agree. <laughs> one of the things I love talking to people about is uh, if they remember the first time they did the thing that they now do for a living. So that, that thing that they love. So I was going to say in your case it would be acting, but it would probably be figure skating, I imagine. The first time that you actually performed in front of people and you kind of got that feeling and that kind of energetic reaction and you kind of like I, this, I, I like this I think I want to keep doing that doing this I mean my I mean since I started so young I don't you know we did a lot of little ice shows but the one I remember is I I, I played a poodle <laughs> I played. I had to wear this little pink poodle costume, and um, and it was a group show. So, and we each had our own little um, solo moment. But in the group choreography, we were supposed to hold our hands, um, like this, like like we were dogs, like mm. um, obviously like the audience, like floppy hands, like yeah. obviously the audience can't see what I just no. did, but I can. Though. Okay. And I remember I was the only one who did it. And I was so upset that like nobody else did it. Mm. And and I remember thinking that I was such that I was the youngest I was the youngest skater in the group and I remember thinking that I was just the star of the group because I did poodle hands. <laughs> <laughs> and I loved the costume because it was just like a pink like it was a pink leotard with like this pink tutu and I had this like pink um tool little tutu hat on mm. and then like floppy ears that came and I just thought I was it was it was everything it was like it was everything <laughs> to me um I must have been maybe like six or seven at mm. the time uh and I mean there was probably like I don't know 
20 people watching the show. It was just the parents, basically. <laughs> um, but I, to me, it felt like I was in the ice capades. Mm. <laughs> it's amazing how big those things feel in yes. the moment and how big your memory of them is as well. Yes. So to kind of track forward a little bit, do, do you feel as though those kind of formative years really prepared you for doing and the kind of rigorous workload that would come with being in feature films and working on television in a rigorous schedule. Well, well definitely, because I um, trained long hours as a kid. I mean, I was up at four in the morning every every day, going to the ice rink before school and then going to school and then having to go back to the rink. Mm. Um, so, you know, I'm really used to getting up early in the morning. <laughs> I, <laughs> I still do, whether I'm working or not. Mm. Um but I, I think it also helps. It helps me. One of the things that I, I think I've always been good at is balancing, balancing work with personal life. Like I said, I didn't feel like I missed out too much on a childhood because I have fond memories of like sleepovers and school dances and boys and friends. And, and, and yes, I wasn't around a hundred percent of the time, but I, I, figured out a way to balance all of it and the schoolwork and mm. you know, I was a straight A student and I was never there. Um, but I figured out how to balance all of that without a lot of stress. Um, and I think that's something that I've always been able to do with work is how to balance a life outside of my work. And, you know, we work long hours and I'm away a lot and, but I'm able to find a balance of having, a good social life and a relationship and a home and all of that with, you know, being on the road and you know, being in a hotel and, mm. and very good at kind of adapting to those new situations. And I think that a lot of that comes from having just having to do that my whole life. Mm. Do you feel as though was, was there a, a, a very kind of tangible change for you when you did start working on Buffy? Um, I felt like on, um, I felt like Buffy and Angel for me was like going to graduate school as an actor. Mm. Um, you know, I went to NYU for undergrad and I got a BFA, but then I made a decision not to go to graduate school cause I, I didn't really see the point in doing more, more studying. Yeah. <laughs> Perpetual student like yeah. me. <laughs> oh, sorry. No, no, I'm joking. Uh, okay, <laughs> but like for me, it just didn't seem like it made sense. I yeah. wanted to go out and do more practical work, and yeah. and so, but I felt that you know Joss Whedon and David Greenwald, who you know produced the show, and you know, obviously wrote the show and um, created the whole world of the mm. show, that they were really open to us as actors trying making decisions like making choices and coming in with ideas and we were never judged if it didn't work. Um, and so, cause we were all young and trying to figure it out and it was definitely for me, I learned a lot about my myself as an actress. I learned mm -hmm. a lot about my instrument. Um, every week I was asked to do something that terrified me. Mm. I was buried alive. I was set on fire I had to sing. Um, there was always something that was like, oh God, I don't know if I can do this. Um, yeah, yeah. And so it really felt, it really was an exciting show to be a part of in my 20s. Um, 
because it really pushed the envelope for me. And it, and most of the work I had done before Buffy and Angel was I was a comedy girl. I was doing sitcoms, you know, failed TV pilots and, mm. <laughs> you know, one season shows here and there. Um, but it was all sitcoms. And Joss was the first one to kind of give me a chance at being a dramatic actress. Mm. And, and I never saw myself as a dramatic actress. I saw myself as a comedian, as, as you know, uh, a pretty girl could be funny. It was kind of what I was always told I was. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, me too. And <laughs> well, you are. Yeah. <laughs> you definitely fit that. <laughs> but I really, you know, that was the label I was given. And so that's what I thought I was. And all of a sudden, here comes Joss Whedon, who's like, I want you to play the most vicious vampire on the planet. Mm. Um, and I'm like, okay, I don't know how I'm going to do it. Was it really, was it a really exciting opportunity? Because it was so against what you thought you were going to be cast as? Yeah, definitely. It was, I remember being terrified because I was like, I don't know how to play a vampire. And they, um, I went in for all the makeup tests. They used me for all the makeup tests to develop the vampire look. So the first time they put the vampire face on me and did the makeup, I remember I went into my trailer and I looked in the mirror and I smiled. And I was like, oh, that's creepy. Mm. And so that's kind of how Darla developed was, she just because it was really creepy if I smiled because I had the fangs and yeah, the yeah. yellow eyes and the and the way the prosthetic moved and how violent it looked um, to just all of a sudden just put on a sweet smile and be like hi <laughs> 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 and that's how she developed because I didn't audition to play a vampire I you know I met Joss because I was one of like a million girls that auditioned to play Buffy mm. I wasn't right for the role of Buffy. But he liked the choices that I brought into the room, and he asked me if I'd play vampire girl number one. She wasn't even Darla at the time. And I was like, okay, sure. <laughs> That'd be fun. <laughs> and it was. Yeah. And uh, vampire girl number one turned into Darla. What was it like to work with, uh, with Joss Whedon? I mean, what was, I suppose at the time he was not as established as he is now. But no. <laughs> uh, what was it like to walk into an, an audition room with someone of his kind of... I imagine he is very level-headed, but also incredibly intelligent and creative. Well, he's he has so much exuberance and so much joy for what it is he does in the world that he creates um, that it's infectious. He's mm. like a big kid. And I remember just being so charmed by him because of how excited he was about doing the show and um, in his his attention to detail and his every decision that he made. Um, you know, the whole world just existed inside of his head and it gave you confidence as an actor because he had thought all this stuff out. Like there was a full world that lived and breathed inside of Joss. Um, and he knew all the rules and he knew how to break them and he knew, you know, and you just felt confident in that, confident in that. And every little detail, I mean, he picked out every item of wardrobe, everything was, everything, there was a plan and idea behind everything. And so, it just, it, it just his joy and his exuberance, I mean, he was so giddy and so excited um, that you just wanted to kind of hop on the train and go for a ride because you knew no matter what happened with it, it was going to be a fun ride. I mean, it was the, the WB was a brand new network. I mean, mm. my 
I don't even think um, my hometown even, because like, I, I come from Pittsburgh, I think they were one of the last people to even get that network. And I think by the time they did get it, Buffy was in like its third season. <laughs> so it was like, my, you know, my parents could, didn't even see me on it in the mm-hmm. beginning. Like, no, like, you know, I mean, it was, it was such a young, new network that, you know, you didn't, we didn't, nobody knew what it was going to be. Nobody knew if this was going to be a hit or not. Um, you know, they had done the movie and the movie was like, so, so, mm, I remember that. Um, and the movie was very different than what Joss wanted to create. That's why he did the show because he wanted to do it his way. And, um, and, but we had no clue. Like just, it was a big risk all around for everybody, but it was his, it was Joss's, joy and exuberance for what it was he was creating that made everybody just go like okay let's do this (laughs) (laughs) i imagine um there are experiences that probably aren't quite as joyful as that and you know kind of makes you not take it for granted when you do have a moment like that i've spoken to a few actors in australia who've worked on you know big shows within australia and they and they talk about these experiences being kind of like you know all the stars kind of align and it's the right cast and Mm -hmm. it's the right crew with the right director and the right producers and everyone just has an amazing time and it and it's reflected in the work yes do do you feel as though uh buffy was an experience like that definitely and i and i think you know I mean, obviously, a lot of it had to do with Joss, but I also think a lot of it had to do with Sarah. Mm. Um, Sarah was amazing. I mean, she was young. She was like 18 years old, working her butt off. Um, It's crazy to think. 18 seems so young to me now. It's crazy to think how much responsibility. She had so much responsibility on her, and I, I give her such huge props. I... I remember at the time because I'm a I'm a couple years older, <laughs> um, and I remember thinking to myself like I don't know if I could handle what she's doing, mm. um, you know. But she had been working as an actor since the age of three, and she was a pro. And she um, talk about being disciplined and having focus, and you know, and also I mean she was also. You know, I learned a lot from her. She was able to balance all of it too with a life as well. Um, but I just was in awe of her because she was so young and yet able to handle the pressure and the stress and the work. And, you know, she was, you know, having stunt rehearsals on the weekends. And I mean, she really had no life and didn't complain, you know, and just handled it with, with, um, just a wonderful spirit and just like a pro and uh and at the time I was like I know adults who couldn't even handle this like and I was in my 20s I was like I don't even know if I could handle this and Mm. yet she was just doing it and um and it was great I mean she she worked really hard to make that show And, and, and to make Buffy a character that will forever live in history I mean you know Sarah's Buffy will forever be remembered and and I find you know what was it 15 years 18 years since the show ended some or i don't know no 10 years like some 2000 I, 2001 even though i don't i mean 
Let's but say it was 15 years. Whatever. But ever, you know, but I meet, I meet people all the time. Like I meet young people all the time who weren't even born then who discovered the show and they watch it on Netflix, on DVD, on iTunes and love it. Mm-hmm. And so it's a show that I, I do believe will forever just stand the test of time. Mm. I think because it doesn't rely on um, visual effects, it's all kind of practical effects mm-hmm. and it's all so grounded in story and relationships. Yeah. You know, it's not about, it's not really about vampires, it's a coming of age right. story, you know, and all that stuff is incidental to all the relationships that are happening around it, even with the people who live in the underworld. Right, and, and, and Joss's writing is just so... Um, the dialogue, I mean, it's just amazing. Yeah. Yeah, he's definitely a craftsman and a master yes. wordsmith. Yes. Um, what was it like when the show was coming to an end from kind of, from the inside? Um, well, I was just recurring on it. So for me, for me, every episode I did was the end. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, Because I, so. I didn't know if I was coming back the following week or not. Like, mm. you just don't know. And I died so many times that... <laughs> I really just thought, like, okay, this is it. This is it. it's over. Um, I, you know, I, I think I think everyone was ready for for it to move on. I, I think that um, nobody wants to be on a show that that becomes like the dead horse, mm. you know, it's limping across the finish line. You want to end a show on a high note and have it end where where the fans are still there and very involved. Um, Every show has to come to an end. It just it just does, unless it's NCIS or CSI, and then they just go on forever. <laughs> but, um, law and order. <laughs> law and order. <laughs> but yeah, but almost every show, ninety nine point nine percent of the shows have to end. <laughs> um, and uh, and you know, Buffy was one of them. I mean, it had to end. Um, you can't have vampires get old. <laughs> no, they don't age. <laughs> they don't age. <laughs> um, but um, They have reached the threshold of aging. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they would be like, Darla will be recast this week. <laughs> Julie has gotten too old. <laughs> but um, but no, but uh, it will... Um, I, I, you know, I, I think that uh, they wanted to end it when, when they could all still be proud of the product and what they were making. And, mm. and it was a tough show. I mean, it, I, to this day, I still think it's one of the toughest shows I've ever worked on. Mm. I mean, obviously, we have to shoot a lot of nights. Mm. Really hard to shoot nights um, on a regular basis. Yeah, because what sort of hours are, are you talking when you're saying nights? Well, um, so Mondays we would start, you know, fairly early in the morning, like at 7 a.m. By Wednesday, we weren't starting until, you know, noon. By Thursday, we were moving into like a 4 p.m. call time. And by Friday, we were working what we call a fratterday, which means <laughs> <laughs> you start on Friday, but you end on Saturday. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you would spend all day, sat- you, you would be asleep all day Saturday because we'd wrap at like 7 in the morning whenever mm-hmm. the sun would come up. And then sleep all day Saturday you'd have like Sunday where you felt halfway human and then go back to work early Monday morning um it was very intense I don't know how the crew was able to sustain such a high level quality of work working those hours we worked a lot of 17 18 hour days Mm. um every episode was a huge episode um and it was it literally was like sprinting a marathon so, you know, when it's a show like that, 
it has to end otherwise people are going to start dying otherwise people will end <laughs> yeah <laughs> so um so uh it it was time to end when it did but it was intense it was definitely it was definitely a difficult <laughs> it wasn't but to me challenging yes because i didn't find it difficult cuz it was one of those shows where the crew was so awesome mm. and the cast was so cool and we were all young and in our 20s and like, you know, getting paid to run around and look like vampires and go, ah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was like, wow, Your poodle hands. <laughs> and I was doing my poodle hands um, <laughs> that uh, that no, you really you really felt the specialness in it. Um, and like I said, it felt like graduate school. I felt like I learned so much and it's really where I think my acting work started to change and shift mm. was working on that show where I really felt like everything I learned in school, everything I learned in acting class, everything I'd been studying and everything I've been doing started kind of falling into place a little bit. And mm. um, in, a, in a kind of practical way, did you find that your life changed a little bit because you started getting recognition for a role that you were doing or had that already sort of been happening? No, I mean, definitely. I mean, you know, uh, you know, I started, well, I started being recognized by fans, but unfortunately at the time in Hollywood, nobody cared. Mm. Like it was, it was, that was what was interesting about working on the WB was the other networks and you know they didn't really put any value on it but yet this was a show that was getting such critical acclaim and and had it been on any other network it would have you know what i mean it would have mm. it would have been nominated for emmys like every single year now they yeah, were yeah. nominated for i think w uh, an emmy for writing um one year and I, I think it was i don't remember the episode it was I think it was Hush, maybe. Although that was my favorite episode, and I'm not even in it. But um, <laughs> um, it was the episode where nobody talks. Right. One of the most brilliant pieces of television ever. Mm. Um, but it was interesting. I would go to London. I would go to England for conven fan conventions, and the audience there was every like everybody watched it because it aired on the BBC, and so everybody would watch the show, old and young, and everyone enjoyed it. Um. Whereas here, everybody thought of it as a teen show. Mm. And it wasn't a teen show. But um, but there was such a, a bias at the time to the WB network. like that Because it was just a fledgling. Mm. Even though they were crushing it in, in ad sales and all that. Because <laughs> they captured the youth market. So kind of coming out of that experience, and kind of glaze over a, a little bit of your career... Um, That's okay. There's a lot to glaze over. <laughs> the, <laughs> uh, I mean, I mean, I don't really think you want to talk in depth about George of the Jungle too. Well, actually, that I was going to. That was the, that, ne that was the next <laughs> place I was going to arrive at. <laughs> um, the I mean, the show, the first show that I watched that really brought you to my attention, at least, was Dexter. Yes. How did you, how, how was the experience, I guess, uh, of Buffy um, contrasted to the experience of working on Dexter? Because you've done your graduate school now. Yes. And you've had 
what was it probably about five or six years from when Buffy and Angel finished to when Dexter began. Really? There was that much time in between? When did Dexter, didn't De- Dexter start at like 2004 or five, I think? I have no idea. I can't remember. All the years run together. That's right. <laughs> uh, it feels like just yesterday. <laughs> it, it was. It was. It's it only 2005. And, and it ended yeah. <laughs> all in one day. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what was, uh, obviously it's now a completely different um, Julie stepping into an audition. We, we did you audition or was it an offer? Yeah, I had, no, no, no. I had to audition. I mean, I had to. I had to pre-read, which was mm. I had to pre-read for the casting director. With this, I had to pre-read with the casting assistant before I was even seen by the casting director. Right. Um, which at the time, a lot of people were advising me not to do it because they're like, you know, you've been on so many shows and blah 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 blah. blah. But I read that script and I was like, I'm gonna. I'm going to pre-read like I want to be in this Mm. and I was reading at the time for both the role of Rita and Deborah because they didn't know a they didn't know what direction they were going in with either character and B they weren't sure where I fit within that so Mm. I was having to to prepare both characters and at the time I really thought I was Deb I really did wow that would have been a very different show yeah and I because I it would have failed because I was not Deb (laughs) but I had to work, I and I worked really hard on it. Like I spent hours and hours and hours and hours coaching on Deb, mm. like coaching for that. And like, because I just wanted to swear. I loved, I loved all the. What's your favorite swear? Fuck. Like, I just loved how she just was like fuck, fuck and just like swearing and like, and I was like, oh my god, this is amazing. Like you get to swear. It's on Showtime. Like mm. this is awesome. And to be honest, I barely worked on Rita. I mean, it was like. Because I didn't have to do much. Like I just, it just felt too easy. Mm. But Deborah felt like it was hard work, and like, <laughs> and I, like an hour on the cardio. Oh my, yeah. It felt, it felt like it was like, you know, eight hours at the ice rink. Like, right. you know, yeah, yeah. This feels, this feels like what acting should be. Mm. It's hard work, and this other character that just feels like it's just, just putting a jacket on, like putting on a, a cozy sweater. It's mm. like. It's too easy. This isn't like, and so I focused so hard on Deborah. And of course, when I finally made it to producers, um, I literally walked in the room and, and Jim Manos, our uh, producer, looked at me and he said, oh my God, you're our Rita. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm reading Deb too. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, no, 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 you're Rita. You're totally Rita. And I was like, no, I'm not. And he's like, yes, you And I'm like, okay. And I was like, and I t- do the scene, and he's like, yeah, you're, you are Rita. And mm-hmm. I just was like, and I remember leaving there just like feeling so dejected that I didn't get to re- even read for Deb. I <laughs> <laughs> just wanted to say fuck. I just wanted like, and I had like this swagger down and this whole, like I thought I was Deb. And, um, do you remember what the, the audition piece was? Uh... It was from the scenes from the the first episode. Mm. It was all the scenes of Rita in the first episode. It was there wasn't a lot for Rita, you know. I mean, it was she was very small in the pilot, so I think she only had like two scenes, and it was those two scenes. Um, and then I went, I tested for it with the network, um, and the feedback came back that they thought um, that they thought I looked too Hollywood, that they thought I looked too glamorous, and that they'd like me to come back um, 
with no makeup on and not looking glamorous. And so I came up with this really amazing idea. Mm. (laughs) I decided to drink a whole bottle of wine. (laughs) 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 because if i drink a whole bottle of wine my eyes get really puffy Mm. and you know i i don't look so good in the morning and oh and the tet that i was going to go back to read for network early the next morning it was like 9 a.m i had to be there and so i drank a whole bottle of red wine and then the next morning i decided not to shower and I had that kind of Appeal weird... to all the senses. Yeah. And I kind of had that like clammy, oh my God, I think I drank too much, flop sweat going on, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. the next morning. And, um, and I put brown mascara in my hair, like at the roots to kind of make my hair... Because I kept talking about how my hair looked too... And I had just gotten my highlights done. So they, <laughs> they said it looked too shiny and too like... And so I took, you know, brown mascara and I put it throughout my hair and... It was really dirty and had that flop sweat going on. and Poodle hands everywhere. Poodle hands everywhere. And I wore, um, they asked me to wear clothes that were unattractive. And so I wore this, like, like these sweatpants and, like, a sweater that didn't match. And, um, and, and not a stitch of makeup. Nothing. Not, not even tinted sunblock. Like, it was like, I went with bare face which no one ever does that for an audition. I had no makeup on. And I remember I, I signed in and I'm sitting there. And granted, in the bag next to me was all my makeup <laughs> and a change of clothes in case I went too far, <laughs> right? And I'm sitting there and I see casting come out and look around. And then I see the producers come out and they're looking around and I see them look at the sign-in sheet and they're like, well, she's here, but where is she? And uh. I was like, oh, hi, guys. <laughs> and they looked at me and the <laughs> our director, he turned to me and he goes, oh, my God, are you wearing a prosthetic? <laughs> and I was like, no. <laughs> and I'm like, you guys told me to come in with no makeup. So I did. And I'm like, don't worry. I got it right here next to me. <laughs> if you want me to put it on. And they were like, no, no, no. You look amazing. <laughs> you like, we didn't even recognize you. And so then they brought the ne- the network execs in. And, they, and I, I knew in that moment that I was getting the job. Like I mm. knew. Even though I had the hangover flop sweat going on and the, and the real puffy eyes and the, <laughs> I knew that I had made the right choice in that moment. It was a risky choice. And mm. a lot of my actress friends were like, you mean you didn't even wear mascara? I'm like, nothing, mm. nothing, not even deodorant. Like I just went like full on, like total different. Mm. That's how I got the role. <laughs> it's amazing. I know it was, um, it was quite the risk. Mm, but you trusted your instincts. I did. I did. Be, I mean, because that's the fun part about being an actor, you know. And the great thing, I mean, season one, Rita, was my absolute favorite because I would show up for rehearsal. I didn't have to show up early for hair and makeup, obviously. Um, and I would braid my hair at night. And however my hair looked in the morning, that's how we wore it. Mm. <laughs> um, so I had like a five-minute hair and makeup calls. I was like a guy. It was like the first time I experienced what it's like to be a guy (laughs) on set where you don't have to be there two hours early, you know, to start the process of getting ready. It was, it was really refreshing. And, you know, I I remember I got a lot of applause um, 
after when season one aired for you know going on camera looking so real mm-hmm. and and I just thought it was really funny because all I did was take the mask away. Mm. You know, it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't. People talk about oh that you know actress you know so ballsy not wearing makeup, but it's actually really empowering and very freeing not to have to wear makeup. I mean, mm. You can touch your face in a scene. You don't have to worry. Like <laughs> you know, <laughs> you can stand under a light and it you won't can, melt. Yeah, I mean, you don't have to. You just don't have to think about it. Mm. And it's very freeing, and um, but everybody says how ballsy it is. But I, I didn't, I didn't feel like I was doing anything ballsy. I just felt like you're being you. It was just being me, and it was truthful to the character, and it, it was, it was very freeing in many ways. But I just remember doing a lot of interviews around that time, and everyone just saying like, you know, how, you know how much courage did it take for me to do that? And I was like, yes, I walk around with no makeup on, like, mm. in my house. Like, that's my life, <laughs> you mm. know? So <laughs> um, it's just like being in my house. It's not a big deal. <laughs> yeah. It's funny, like, I, n- I never even had that thought, like, you that you looked plain. You always had this quiet, uh, magnetic kind of beauty, and I guess that's from letting your insides shine out no it was the lighting the lighting yeah it was romeo tyrone (laughs) rdp it was the lighting trust me he lit me so well (laughs) but they would do that they would do like this kind of special lighting to make rita look like this angelic Mm. um because basically she was always viewed through dexter's eyes yeah yeah and so it was like always kind of like his view of her so um, if you watch the lighting in season one, I mean, all throughout the show, but especially in season one, um, that her lighting was always that kind of mm. angelic lighting. And a lot of backlighting. A lot of back, a lot of front, a lot of circle lights around the camera, right. like where it just makes you look fantastic. Mm. <laughs> well, maybe they, they were comp- maybe they were compensating for the fact that I wasn't wearing any <laughs> makeup, but... <laughs> Um, what was the what was the show like to work on? It was it was it was great. It was fun. It was intimidating. It was scary. It was um, it was all those things. I mean, I was a, a big Michael C. Hall fan. Um, I thought he was, you know, I, I, I believe I honestly believe. I mean, he's one of our best actors out there. Mm, I mean, I would agree with that. I mean, working with him is like. You know, making um, it, it's like watching you know an accomplished violinist perform. Mm. You know, I mean his instru- his the way he uses his instrument, the way he um, his understanding of script and character and all of that is it's 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 in some ways savant like. You know, like he's he really is quite brilliant um, mm. and. The whole cast, everybody was from New York except for me. Um, I felt like the little L.A. actress. Like, <laughs> you know, it was intimidating. Everyone had, you know, all actors have their own process, and you know, they um, they all had a lot more training than I did as far as like book training and you know breaking down scripts and stuff. And they, you know, they carried little notebooks around with like all these copious amounts of notes and all this character stuff and I don't work that way I mean I, I, I work very much like in the moment 
learn your lines, really be present, mm-hmm. see how things affect you, um, really take it in, you know, be aware, don't come in with a preconceived idea of how you want to play the scene, but really see how, what the dynamic is being created on set and see how that inspires you, you know, um, which is a very different process. And um, so I was intimidated. Hmm. And I joke around a lot on set too because I, I try to, the, the less um, stressful it feels for me, the more relaxed I am, the better my work is. So if it feels, um, if I feel nervous or stressed at all, the way I relieve that is I start joking around because that relaxes me. And... Um, a lot of the actors on, on Dexter were very serious, so there wasn't... Mm-hmm. So it was... But I learned to joke around with the crew, so it was um, easier, yeah. you know what I mean? But for me, that was part of my... I had to recognize that that was part of my process. That if I... Especially if I'm doing a very emotional scene, I'm the girl that you know will talk to you up until they yell action, and then I'll just start... I'll burst into tears, play a whole scene and then they'll cut and I'll finish my conversation with you like mm. but that's just my way of dealing with the emotions that I have to deal with in the scene like I, I can't live in that if I start I'm not the girl with the headphones on in the corner like <laughs> you know crying yeah. for f- three hours during the shooting of the scene it's like no I just turn it on and off and mm. because I, I can't it's a joke yeah, and I, I, I just, but, but everybody has a different process, but sure. mine's like crazy. <laughs> um, no, I don't know. But, Is uh, that crazier than sitting in a corner crying for? I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to poo other people's. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but, we're all uh, crazy. We're, we're all, all here because we're not all there. Exactly. Exactly. Michael J. Fox quote. Uh, really? Yeah. Michael J. Fox. It's mm-hmm. <laughs> awesome. Mm. Um, Sorry, I interrupted you. And no, 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 but uh, but I, I I had to learn that that was my process. That and it's it's just as valuable as you know someone sitting in the corner crying with headphones on. <laughs> mm. Um, so season one, I was very intimidated by everybody, and it was interesting to kind of work through it. And I think it worked for Rita because I think Rita was you know that very damaged bird and mm. um. I, I felt like in season one, Rita was saying, I'm sorry, behind every sentence. Like there was always a silent, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Mm. You know, she was apologizing constantly without apologizing, but like it was always there. Um, and then, um, yeah. And then she grew and changed. I mean, I, I think that Rita came in, characters come into your life at a certain time for a reason. Maybe mm. because of stuff you're going through personally, or maybe because um, you're you know you grow and change as a person that all of a sudden you're attracted to something different. And I think for me, Rita, um, Rita came along. I mean, I went through divorce while I was working on the show, and um, and that maybe she came along to kind of. I don't know. It's just, I don't think I could have played her at any t- other time in my life. I don't even know if I could play her now. Mm. But at that time that she came into my life was a vulnerable time and it was a time where 
for whatever reason, she just resonated with me. So I'm going to specify, spoiler alert, just in case anyone who's listening to this (laughs) hasn't seen Dexter at this point in time. I really shouldn't, but I'm going to say it anyway. (laughs) You're being polite. I'm being polite. (laughs) uh, Skip ahead to (laughs) another podcast. (laughs) Uh, But what was, I mean, in, in every season of Dexter, you've got, there's a guest who's coming in for the duration of the season. Yeah, you get the big bad. You get the big bad. You get the big bad. Um, was was that was that quite exciting as a cast to kind of be collaborating with someone in a short term kind of period? And and these are actors of very high sort of caliber yes. performers. Was that really exciting from the inside to kind of have that keeping things fresh? Yeah. No. It was well. First of all, it was really flattering that people wanted to come. Like these big stars wanted to come and play with us. Um, you know, uh, it was, it, it, it basically kind of cemented that we had kind of landed on the map somewhere. We don't know exactly, at the time, not, we didn't know exactly where, but that we were, land, we were landing somewhere on the map. And that, and you know, I, I, I think for me, when Jimmy Smits came on in season three, that yeah. was like, that was like, oh my God. Mm. <laughs> like, he and you know, and the fact that he was like I was a big fan of the show, I wanted to do it, and it was like, whoa, that's really cool. Because season one, you know, we did well for season one, but it, season one was not the season. Nobody, it wasn't, it wasn't the show that it ended up being. Like it, no. it didn't have the fan base at the time. It had a solid following, and people were somewhat talking about it. But it wasn't until like season two, and then people rediscovering season one that we started getting the like water cooler talk Mm. um and then i think season three we really like hit it like so and then obviously season four Mm. (laughs) Mm. Uh, i think season four kind of cemented the dexter's place in history yes that was definitely my favorite season (laughs) Um. it was it was my favorite and my least favorite. <laughs> <laughs> All rolled into one. <laughs> yeah. And what was it like to work with John Lithgow when he walked in on set? Well, I, you know, I never had any scenes with him. Mm. But um, we'd always be at the table reads together. And he's just a wonderful, charming, funny man. Very genuine, very humble. Um, and, and terrifying. And he can be very terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the arc of that season is amazing and mm-hmm. obviously has quite a tragic ending which oh you know i never saw it. what happened um <laughs> it turned out that it was all dexter's dream <laughs> and the title of the book was actually more accurate than <laughs> we all thought um uh, how, how did that at what point did you kind of discover that this is what was happening in the season um well at the very end right you know i, w- I was Producers called me in a couple of days before, and they said, um, "They said, uh, actually, they didn't have to say anything because when you get called to the producer's <laughs> office, you know you're not getting a raise. Mm. <laughs> uh, when they when they call you and they say they want to have a meeting with you, you know, like, all right, they're killing me off, and mm. so, um, and so I kind of said it for them, and." Uh, just because I just wanted to get it out and just get it done with and 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 be graceful, um, and it was, 
you know, it, it, it was tough. And, and, and the reasons were valid. I mean, what they wanted, you know, they wanted a shocking ending. They, they felt they needed it for the season. Um, it was hard to hear, you know, mm. it, I think my, you know, my response, I think will help people understand the connection between actor and character, which is my first response was, Oh my God, I just lost my job. Mm. And then my second response was who's going to raise Harrison. <laughs> <laughs> so It shows you like kind of the split personality between actor and character. Mm. Um, and, I thought it was a really risky move. Um, I felt that Rita, that season had been kind of painted into a corner um, and and made a villain, mm. um, which in all the other seasons she hadn't been. But I felt like in season four she had, and and it made sense in some ways than how, why it ended the way it did, but. Um, I I felt that she was being made a villain to Dexter, and I didn't necessarily know if that was a smart move. You know, I I I wasn't happy with that. I mean, you know, she I felt I really did feel in season four she was being made the villain, mm. which I thought was ironic because here she is, she's a struggling, you know, she's a mother of you know, three children, and she's a house, she's a wife, and she's, you know. She thinks her husband is a recovering addict mm. and she's doing her best, but it's like the audience really hated her, like really hated her season four. And um, and I thought it was really risky of them to do this because I was just like, no one's going to care. Like, you know, what if they don't care? What mm. if they're, they, they're happy? You know, you don't have, it's not shocking then. Um, I felt like it, it it could have been a better season for her to to have ended it. Where, but in the end, it actually did work out. I mean, and I was I was overwhelmed by the fan response because mm. I honestly thought no one's gonna care. Everyone hates her this season. Like she's just she's always like Dexter, do this. Dexter, do that. And she's nagging him constantly, and it just was like. And I just thought I was having. I just thought the character was. Ha- it happens in television where, you know, you every. You know, not every season can be an amazing season for your character, mm. and so I just thought like, all right, this is just this is Rita's season to be like. You know, kind of take a sideline, and 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 just, you know, because um, I had a great season one and season two were definitely my favorites, and and I really felt the Rita development and storyline were really strong. Mm. Season three was was good, but I really felt, I thought season four, I'm like, okay, well, you know, this is my time to kind of take a back seat. And then, you know, maybe season five, something will happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Um, <laughs> so, but I was overwhelmed by the fan response. Mm. Um, it was shocking. It was. It was. It was one of the more shocking moments of television of any show I've ever watched. It was. And, you know, it was interesting. They had a big screening. Um, they had a big, like, fan party for the finale of season four. And they went and, sh- and Showtime was hosting it. It was at some big event space. And they had all these fans there. And I went. They wanted me to go. And I went. But I told them, I'm going to leave when the show starts airing. Like, I'm going to leave. I'm not, I don't want to be here in the room when... 
and I get emotional. It's like I didn't want to, I didn't want to ha- be in a room full of people I don't really know and watch it. I never watched it. Didn't watch the end. Um, I came back here to the house and uh, I had some girlfriends here, and we watched all the way up until that moment, and then we just turned it off. Um, but I was like, I didn't want to share because I felt like it was just going to be too overwhelming. Like that I would, A, I was emotional because, you know, it was my job, it was my home, it was my life, it was, you know what I mean? It was my life for the last four years. It mm. was something that you've created as and, well. Yeah, the art. job that I loved. And I just felt like I would start blubbering like a baby in front of like all these people I didn't know. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and all the show, and all the executives and all that. And then also, um, then I was like, and what if everybody cheers? Like, <laughs> like it had they had the opposite reaction. Yeah. So I left and came back here. And then I remember the next day I was with some friends and we went, we walked into a restaurant and um, as soon as we walked in, you could hear like all of a sudden there was like weird silence. And then like two tables got up and came over and like, well, freaking out and like hugging me and like, Oh my God, you're alive. And I'm mm. like, oh, well, yeah, they don't really kill you. <laughs> I wasn't really like, in a bath full of like, blood. Like it's not a snuff film. <laughs> <laughs> like it's, it's, it's make believe. Mm. And, but that's been the visceral reaction mm. from fans is I get so many people and it's been lovely. So many people want to give me a hug and uh, tell me about their experience of what they emotionally went through. And I feel like in some, some ways now I'm like their therapist. Mm. Where <laughs> I have to you know, hug them and say, it's okay. Mm. <laughs> it's okay. I'm still alive. Mm. Well, that uh, was actually why I wanted to do this podcast. Just to make you sure wanted, you wanted a hug. You were still alive. <laughs> I'm still and alive. And then get a hug. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you didn't have to go to such extremes. No? <laughs> no. Uh, I like to stand out. <laughs> Plus my mum came, so I know it's kind of creepy that she's still in the driveway. Yeah, well, she's got a Game Boy. Okay, yeah. <laughs> Game Boy, original Game Boy, Mario Tetris and, and Tetris. Tetris. Doctor Mario. <laughs> the hell was Doctor Mario? I don't know. That was a weird game. I was good at Tetris. You were good at Tetris. Yeah. Favorite block? I, the L shape. The L shape. Yeah. I hated the L shape. Love the L I shape. I like the straight four line one. Of course, because that was the easiest one. Yeah. Yeah, no, the L shape you could flip around and make it like do mm. sort of, it could fit the L shape could fit in anywhere. Oh, I see. Yeah. I I pick up what you're putting down. <laughs> it's an L shaped block, right? It's an L shaped block. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so coming out of that traumatic experience of having Oof. your soul destroyed. Yes. And your character murdered. Yes. Brutally and bloody. Awful, yeah. Bloodily. Um, there's still a few more seasons of the show. Yes. How was it to kind of have been so intensely involved and then it's like just cut and now you're no longer involved at all? Um, I drank a lot. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it was really sad. <laughs> no, um, no, I mean, you know, one of the things I think as an actor you have to accept early on is that, especially in television, that... Um, you don't own the show. You don't own the character. The character, like it's it, it's not a, it's not really an actor's medium. It's a um, it's a writer's medium, and a producer's medium. And so therefore, you know, I'm just a hired gun to tell a story, 
and that's really it. I have no ownership over it. And as soon as you kind of recognize that and give up any type of ownership that you might feel you have, then you can accept these curveballs that are thrown at you. Mm. And, you know, and hindsight's always twenty twenty, but it really was a great thing to have happen. Mm. You know, um, it, it was great for my career, obviously. Um, but it was also, in some ways, it had to happen. You know, because how many, how many seasons could we have of Rita calling Dexter up on the phone while he's in the middle of, middle of a kill and make it interesting? That's what he was doing? <laughs> he's a butcher. <laughs> All right. right. <laughs> Just a regular butcher. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, how many se- how, how long could they sustain that mm. device? And um, in some ways, and like, like I've said before, it's always good to go out on a high note. So mm. for me, it, um, you know, I went out on, a hi- on the highest note possible. Mm. Um, and I feel very blessed for that. I feel very blessed that the fans um, felt such a connection to Rita that uh, in many ways everybody feels like that's when you, I, I think the honor that was bestowed on me by that moment is that that's the moment that everyone remembers of the show. Mm. When you talk about Dexter, that's the moment everyone yeah. talks about. And that's an honor to have that. Mm. Like I, I feel honored that that was my character, that that was, I was involved in that moment. I think it was definitely the pinnacle of the show. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've, you've worked on some pretty amazing and extraordinary programs uh, and, and films as well. And something I'm very fascinated by, particularly people who have had such sustained careers, is about how we define success because it's different for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I guess it's it's all about a perspective and, and, you know, nothing means anything except for what we make it mean. Um, and so I'm curious what your... Do you feel as though you've had and continue to have a very successful career or is it something that is constantly evolving or is it something that is elusive how d- how is that kind of well um it's it's a mix of all those things i mean it's uh <laughs> sometimes <laughs> sometimes it feels very elusive um uh sometimes um you know sometimes it feels um not so elusive. I mean, I, I think for me, success is that as long as I make a living at something I love doing, that's successful to me. Mm. Um, and that's what I really love like about my careers is, you know, I love working as an actor. I love being on set. I can be on set for... 15, 18 hours and I'm not tired and I love every, I love every aspect of the industry. Um, even auditioning. I love auditioning. And that's crazy because no actor likes to audition. <laughs> but You I, see it as a competitive sport. Don't it you? is like a competitive sport. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I think if you love something, you have to, you have to take the good and the bad and so you have to, 
you have to roll with it. And um, so I just feel like as long as, I feel like success for me is, is you know, as long as I get to keep doing what I love, mm. that's successful. I mean, are there bigger roles? Yes. Are there bigger shows? Are there, you know, award like awards, all of that? Like, is that defining? No, because I think, I just think, listen, I already won the game. I mean, it's only, Five percent of my union actually make a living at being an actor, mm. so that's successful. Mm. <laughs> you know, you you, it's um, it's the fact that I get paid to do what I love. Mm. It's pretty amazing. It is. <laughs> it's it's awesome. shocking sometimes. It's shocking. <laughs> great. It's good to be in a state of awe, I think, and to have that perspective to know that such a small. Uh, percentage of people do actually get to make a fist of this sort of career right uh, I mean you know y- there there are so many listen it's not always the most talented that gets to work I mean there's there's a huge amount of really wonderfully talented actors out there that no one's ever heard about mm. um, and for whatever re- reason they don't get the opportunity and and I feel so blessed that I've been given opportunity and I'm grateful every day I'm on on set. I'm grateful. I'm grateful for the, for the fact that it's me there and and for the job. And when I go to work, I love my work. Mm. You know, it's not, it's not like one of those memes where people are like, I hate work. (laughs) Mondays. Mondays uh, over it, you know, like, It's like no when I when I get to be on set every time every minute I get to be an actor is a good day. Mm. Every day is Friday. Yeah. So even if that's just having an audition, that's why I like to audition because I actually get to be an actor. Mm. It means that I get to be an actor that day. And you get to perform for people. Yeah. Bad days are when I don't have that. Mm. <laughs> it's amazing, and I think gratitude is such a high. I mean, for me anyway, gratitude mm. is probably the highest. Is it a virtue? I don't know. What it, whatever it is, I think gratitude is kind of the peak of uh, what what will make or break your enjoyment of an experience or yes. of um, a moment or whatever it is. Your level of gratitude and, and thanks for, um, f- for whatever that may be. Um, I, I think that's, I think it's really amazing. Yeah, I think it's important because you can get caught up, especially in this industry particularly. Mm. As in probably most industries, you can get caught up in the the minuscule day-to-day of what it is we do and, and the pros and cons and the, the, the stresses and, the, and you can get caught up in all that stuff. And if you don't have some sort of perspective as to, you know, if you don't have some sort of gratitude for what it is you do, mm. um, it will, um, I believe the machine will spit you out. <laughs> 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 but um, I think those that that it achieve success is because they're grateful. Mm. Um, or those that stick around. Like, I think I've stuck around. Mm. <laughs> I've been doing it for almost thir- like oh, 30 years and it's, and I think it's because I'm so grateful every day, mm. you know. It's amazing because this industry can chew you up and destroy, destroy you, and destroy your soul. 
Well, it seems like a really great place to uh, to end this ramble. <laughs> um, I am r- really, really very appreciative of your time, and oh, I have I have a lot of gratitude oh, for uh, for you. being able to do this with you. I have one final question, yes, which I ask everyone, and that question is, what makes you silly? What makes me silly? Mm-hmm. What makes me silly? Does silly mean the same thing in Australian as it means in American? <laughs> yes. Yeah, okay, okay. I just wanted to make sure because <laughs> bin meant something different. Yeah, um, that's true. What makes me silly? Um, I don't know because I think I'm, I think I'm naturally a silly person to begin with. Mm. Um, I don't think of myself as a serious person at all. Uh, poodle hands <laughs> definitely my poodle hands um but uh yeah i i, I think i'm i'm naturally just as i think i'm i lean more nor, lean more towards being of silly nature mm. so what are things that are generally likely to push you into a silly kind of disposition well my dogs i talk to my dogs all the time all right yeah <laughs> Yeah. What are your dog's names? Bamboo and Sugar. Bamboo really, and Sugar. Yeah, yeah, really amazing names. Yeah, yeah right? very eclectic. Bamboo Benz. Imagine right. going to the vet. I have Bamboo Benz here. <laughs> <laughs> he sounds like a stripper. Or a wrestler. <laughs> or a wrestler. Bamboo mm. Benz. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, my dog. I talk to them a lot. I like taking fun pictures of them. They hate me. <laughs> I used to sing a song to my dog. To the theme of Dexter. You did? Yep. Well, how'd it go? His name is Bob the dog. <gasps> and then it went on like that. Uh-huh. That actually was good. Mm. That's He's good. not a warthog. <laughs> He's not a warthog. That, those, those were the only lyrics I could come up with, but I sang them over and over again. I always sing, um, I sing a song to Bamboo, um, the cops theme song. Oh, yeah. Bad boys. <laughs> Bad cops, bad, bad cops. Co- what you gonna do, do? What you gonna do when they come for you, right? Yeah. I'm always like, bamboo, bamboo. What you gonna do? <laughs> what you gonna do when they come for you? <laughs> and then I call Sugar. I call her Sukar, which is a character that was in Defiance. Mm. He was my favorite character in Defiance, and so I'm always referring to her as Sukar, <laughs> like Sukar, Sukar. And she's this little white fluffy dog, and she just looks at me like, what? And I'm like, Sukar. <laughs> it would have been a better name than Sugar. It's pretty silly. Yeah. Thank you so much. Oh, uh, thank you. I'm going to go and get mum now. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>